Welcome to Navarra Live here on Navarra Media. I'm Aaron Bastani, and this evening I have the immense pleasure of being joined by Michael Walker. Michael, how are you? I'm very well. A pleasure. I'm a bit worried that the Navarra audience is going to be a little bit oversaturated with my presence. I've been on the last four Navarra Lives as well as your downstream. That's it. Michael is the cameraman. He also takes up the bins. He's the, the kit man. He locks the doors at night. He does security too. He's a man of many talents. For the last three weeks, newspaper front pages and broadcast bulletins have been dominated by reports about the disappearance of Nicola Bully. It's been impossible to miss every twist and turn in the case as the media frenzy intensified. But after the body of the mother of two was found on Sunday, the family issued a statement via Lancashire Police on Monday. In it, they took particular aim at Legacy Media for its disrespectful behaviour. Our girls will get the support they need from the people who love them the most. And it saddens us to think that one day we will have to explain to them that the press and members of the public accuse their dad of wrongdoing, misquoted and vilified friends and family. This is absolutely appalling. They have to be held accountable. This cannot happen to another family. We tried last night to take in what we have been told in the day, only to have Sky News and ITV making contact with us directly when we expressly asked for privacy. They again have taken it upon themselves to run stories about us to sell papers and increase their own profits. It is shameful they have acted in this way. Leave us alone now. Do the press and other media channels and so-called professionals not know when to stop? These are our lives and our children's lives. So, that family endured weeks of media and social media harassment while undergoing the highly distressing experience of having a loved one go missing. They even cooperated with the press, giving interviews and statements. Then, when her body was found and they're in the depths of mourning, they asked journalists to respect their privacy. Only for two broadcasters, namely ITV and Sky, singled out by name to ignore their request. And it wasn't even the first time Bully's family felt it necessary to ask the press to back off. Just days before her body was recovered, Lancashire Police re released personal details about the missing woman. Shortly after, and in response to wild public speculation fueled by the wall-to-wall -wall coverage, the family released this statement. It has now been three weeks since Nikki went missing. We, as a family, believe that the public focus has become distracted from finding Nikki and more about speculation and rumours into her and Paul's private life. As a family, we were aware beforehand that Lancashire Police last night released a statement with some personal details about our Nikki. Although we know that Nikki would not have wanted this, these are, or there are rather, people out there speculating and threatening to sell stories about her. This is appalling and needs to stop. The police know the truth about Nikki, and now the public need to focus on finding her. Due to the perimenopause, Nikki suffered with significant side effects, such as brain fog, restless sleep, and was taking HRT, that's hormone replacement therapy, to help, but this was giving her intense headaches, which caused Nikki to stop taking the HRT, thinking that may have helped her, but only ended up causing this crisis. The public focus has to be on finding her and not making up wild theories about her personal life. It must have been agonizing for the family to write that. 
So naturally, the press ignored them. This is a headline from the Mail on Sunday on the day that Bully's body was found. Nikki is not an unfit mum. Close friend of Nicola Bully calls for halt to rumours around the woman she describes as a most amazing mother. The endless speculation, tittle-tattle and obsessive focus on the minutiae of Bully's private life didn't end with the media though. Members of the public, pretty predictably, got caught up in the hysteria too. The Guardian reports this. Shortly after Bully's disappearance, police were forced to put in place a dispersal order after TikTok and YouTube influencers arrived on the scene, intimidating local people and causing a nuisance to police. Hundreds of people have since traipsed through the beauty spot taking photographs with social media, and other visitors broke into buildings and went through local people's gardens at night in the hope of finding her. On TikTok, videos hashtagging Bully's name have nearly racked up an astonishing 400 million views. On Instagram, Nicola Bully posts have been viewed nearly 7 million times a day. Ranging from armchair detectives to conspiracy theorists, some video makers have accused Bully's friends of being, quote, crisis actors, while others released false information about arrests in the case. Michael Vincent heads Wire Council. He told reporters this. It's almost as though social media idiocy and reality have become blurred. We've had these weirdos, these ghouls, trying people's door handles, peering through their windows. There has to be an element of decency. We can't allow social media to be a place where there is no morality. While the press have been keen on reporting every detail of the case for weeks, there's one they haven't highlighted. Yes, you've guessed it, Nicola Bully's family's criticism of their own conduct. These are all the major newspapers covering the discovery of Bully's body today. Except for The Guardian and The Eye, no headline even mentions the family's criticism of how journalists have covered the case. It's like it never happened. Sky and ITV, which were both singled out by the family for their coverage and for contacting them when they asked for privacy, have discussed the family's criticism. But that's because broadcasts are regulated by Ofcom, which can investigate their conduct even without receiving a complaint from the public. Which is exactly what's happened this afternoon with Ofcom releasing this statement. We're extremely concerned to hear the comments made by the family of Nicola Bully about two broadcast licensees. We have written to ITV and Sky to ask them to explain their actions. We will then assess whether any further action is required. The print media, however, is regulated by IPSO, which basically just enforces a complaints handling process. Patience Wheatcroft, the former editor of the Sunday Telegraph, told Radio 4's Today programme her views on newspaper regulation. If the story is about how the papers and the media generally behaved are true, and I don't know, um, then I think there's every reason for people to be deeply upset and perturbed. And it's now up to the regulator, Ipso in this case, to demonstrate that it really has teeth. As a former newspaper editor, I'd always hoped that, that my reporters respected the people that they were dealing with. And in any situation like the Nicola Bully case, if the family had said, lay off, that they would have absolutely run a mile. What I've, I've read about this case, people have behaved very badly. Not least, of course, members of the public and social media. So it's become the most extraordinary feeding frenzy. But I am worried that if the regulator can't now show its teeth, and it can levy fines of up to a million pounds, then the media will be looking 
at perhaps the call for government intervention getting louder again. And that, I must say, Michelle, would really frighten me because if ever we've needed a free press, it's when you're living through a time with a government which is challenging human rights to the extent it is and trying to bring in the most draconian laws, we need a press and a media that can be free to report. This is a really extraordinary story. I'm going to read something from the IPSO code. So as we've said already, IPSO is the regulator for the press in this country, the self-regulator. Before coming to you, Michael, this is from Clause 4 of the IPSO code. It covers intrusion into grief or shock. In cases involving personal grief or shock, clearly this covers that, inquiries and approaches must be made with sympathy and discretion and publication handled sensitively. Clearly, we've seen to a significant extent that being ignored. The point is, there aren't really any consequences. Michael, what do you make of all of this? And uh, given Ofcom has more teeth than Ipso, do you think we might see some punishments coming for the broadcasters, but not for the... uh, not for the tablets. What's interesting here in the case that will probably be made by Sky and ITB, who, as I understand it, are the people who've been um, you know, complained about, is they'll say, look, this was based on a misunderstanding. We did have open communications with the family, which for a while they were appreciative of. I presume, as I say, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen those internal communications, but I think this is what the, the argument will be based upon. Because I think the complexity here is that when there is a missing person, often the family quite reasonably and understandably wants to raise the profile of that because they think the more people talking about the missing person, the more people um, there will be looking um, for that missing person. So there is, in a way, sort of a mutually beneficial relationship. But I mean, beneficial is, is potentially making it seem a little bit less traumatic than this all is. But there is a reason for which people who have a missing loved one want the press to be talking about this, right? And then that relationship gets out of control. And then you have the media who think, well, you've been talking to us for this long about it. We can't then hide details we think are useful for our readers to know, given that you've spoken to us beforehand. So I think, you know, I I don't think we need to have more sympathy than, than necessary for the broadcasters and the newspapers. But I think that's probably partly what's gone on here. I mean, also, you have the, you know, the person who I keep, or I kept seeing pop up in the media, um, was the the diver who um, the family had, you know, asked to get involved because they weren't too confident that the police were were looking thoroughly enough. And he's been all over the press and the newspapers and and on the media. And again, you know, this isn't necessarily sinister or cynical, but I think the idea that you know, in, it's as simple as 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 simple as sorry, there's a family who say we want complete privacy, and then the media are talking about it against their will. That's not quite the case often in these situations because very understandably the family want that media retention. Of course, once they've found out tragically that the, their loved one has passed away, there's no point in, in having that media speculation anymore because you know, the purpose they served you no longer, you know, there's no use um, to them being involved anymore. So they're going to want silence, basically, as soon as she's discovered um, dead. But the media are thinking, well, we've covered this for the last three weeks. Of course, we're going to report properly on it when this has happened. So I mean, were were some calls made which shouldn't have been made? That seems to be the allegation here. More than what was actually printed, it was sort of that there was this outreach for comment when they didn't want anyone to be contacting them. I imagine it's going to be the circumstances in which those calls or emails were made um, as much as what was ever published about this. And there's the issue around social media too. I mean, I talked about the number of people that are viewing content on TikTok in particular, which was just astonishing for me. 
you know, you and I are a bit older than the sort of target audience for TikTok, but a lot of these um, digital sleuths were going through footage and CCTV, and then some people were even going from the online world to the offline world, actually going up to crime scenes and whatnot. Legacy media loves to bash social media. If you had to make a judgment call here as to what's more harmful to the body politic and actually for getting to the heart of these kinds of problems, solving crime. I know you're not a policeman, Michael. I know you have no ambitions to be a policeman, but you're somebody who works in the media. You've seen legacy media, you've seen social media and the, the interface between them. What out of those two do you think is perhaps more harmful and obstructs investigations like this? In terms of which is more harmful and which does more obstruction, it's probably difficult to you know top them up and see which one is bigger. I mean, I think in both cases, you're going to have very different people to blame, right? So when it comes to the media, if if they are, when they've been expressly not asked to contacting the family, then that does seem unacceptable. And also these are professionals. They have a lot of agency here. We should be able to hold them to account, right? So, so that seems like a problem where there doesn't need to be one. If you just sort of demanded that the media be a bit more respectful than they might currently be being to a family who've just suffered a tragedy, um, then that seems resolvable. I suppose the issue with social media is that even if it is more harmful, what do we do about it? You know, it is much more complicated. So I can see why you would go for the low-hanging fruit and try and get the media to act properly before you go after social media. I mean, at the same time, what what would what would they do? Would they get TikTok to take down videos of people playing private detective? I mean, is it potentially also the case that there are examples of people playing private detective and actually helping find a missing person and then the family being appreciative? As I say, I'm not as a, I'm not an aficionado of true, true crime podcasts. Um, so I don't really move in all of these spaces, but I can see how there is how there is complexity here and how someone could potentially make the case for um, there being at least some involvement of, of social media in these things. Although, I, you know, I have heard, you know, the police and journalists who work on this say that's never how things are solved. Um, and to be honest, it is just noise and, and, and unnecessary, which I also think is very plausible. I mean, I suppose if everyone just acts with some sensitivity, this wouldn't be the case. But then that's kind of, you know, wishing for utopia, isn't it? Next story. Kate Forbes is Scotland's finance minister. The 32-year-old is highly respected amongst her Hollywood peers, and she appeared to be a front-runner to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as Scottish First Minister. This is how she launched her campaign on Monday afternoon. Friends in the SNP, our nation and our movement are at a major crossroads. The choices that we make in the next few weeks will have a profound impact on our future and on our children's future. I can't sit back and watch our nation thwarted on the road to self-determination. Our small, independent neighbours enjoy wealthier, fairer and greener societies, and so should we. We urgently need to unleash the full talent of the SNP, the wider Yes movement and the country at large. We need to choose strong, competent leadership to deliver independence, the leadership that I can offer. I believe we need someone who can unite our party and our movement. I'm a unifier. I'll reach out and listen so that every member feels valued and able to contribute. That's also important if we're to persuade others of the merits of independence. But right now, we also need somebody with a grip on our economy and our finances. In the throes of a cost of living crisis and the need to plan for independence, my years managing Scotland's budget and economy have given me the experience that we need to do just that. More than anything, we need a leader who's bold, brave and energised, fresh-faced and ready for new challenges. Somebody who inspires your confidence as an SNP member and who inspires the confidence of the people of Scotland to vote for a better future. 
I am that leader, and I want to lead our party into better days with integrity and commitment for the sake of your children and my children. Thank you. That's a polished and professional campaign video designed to inspire confidence and optimism in its audience. And it worked. Not long after announcing her bid, several top SNP figures came forward to endorse Forbes for leader. But it would be just a matter of hours before the wheels came spinning off when Forbes said this. Marriage being between a man and a woman, that is what I practice. But I will not roll back on any rights that already exist in Scotland. If you were about at the time where you were able to legislate on this, that's been a gone now, but you would have voted against that then because of your beliefs. I would have. And I think the example that's worth talking about here is Angela Merkel. Under Angela Merkel's leadership, she held a vote on same-sex marriage. She implemented the results of that vote to introduce the legal right to equal marriage, but she voted in line with her conscience. That's a candidate for Scottish First Minister, suggesting that she doesn't believe that same-sex marriages are real marriages. But that wasn't enough for Forbes. She then went on to give this interview to Sky News. Is it correct for people to have children before marriage? It's entirely up to them. It's if they're What's your view? Is it, is it correct for, children, uh, for, for people across Scotland to have children outside of marriage? Um, it's, it's, not, it's something that I would um, seek to avoid for me personally, but it doesn't fuss me, doesn't put me up or down um, the choices that other people make. Is it, right or is, it, is it, is it right or is it wrong well, in your in view? In terms of my faith, my faith would say that children, well, it says sex is for, for marriage, and that's the approach that I would practice. But So is it, in your view, wrong then for people to have children outside of marriage? That, that's your view, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, you're asking me, would I impose my views on other people. Ultimately, that's what you're asking. No, I'm, I'm just asking and what your view is. So is. Is that correct? You know, you, In terms you, of me personally, that is the approach I would practice. But I'm just asking you, you think it's wrong? Well, I, th I think for, for me, it would be wrong according to my faith. Sex and children, ideally just for married people. Presumably given the first interview straight, married people. Then in a different interview with ITV News, Forbes was asked about conversion therapies. As First Minister, what progressive policies would you bring in to further the rights of those within the LGBT plus communities? Well, there are already plans around conversion therapy, a conversion therapy bill, which I believe is due um, over the course of uh, this year. I absolutely condemn the use of coercion in any way. Even within a religious setting? I condemn the use of coercion in all settings. I think that uh, the use of coercion has no place uh, in Scotland. So, for instance, the UK government looking at the conversion therapy bill, or there's a loophole where it would still be able to take place within a religious setting. Would you look to, as First Minister, ensure that loophole wasn't in place in a Scottish law? Well, I think that coercion has no place um, across Scotland. So I think that that uh, bill will be subject, obviously, to scrutiny. And all bills have got to be balanced. You've got to get that right balance between um, permitting some uh, freedom of, of speech, obviously, and at the same time ensuring that it's robust enough to uh, outlaw coercion. Now, why is she answering a question about conversion therapy in terms of coercion? 
One reason is that she may approve of conversion therapies where the victim volunteers, which is actually what happens in most cases. The point of banning conversion therapies is that they're damaging, dangerous, and ineffective, even when a person puts themselves forward. A frontal lobotomy isn't good for you either. And frankly, nobody cares if you volunteer. It's still a very bad idea. The backlash to these interviews came fast. Claire Hoy is Scottish Minister of Children and Young People. She had backed Forbes for, quote, skills, knowledge, experience. Hoy later posted this on social media. I absolutely and completely support equal marriage. I'm unequivocal on this issue. I cannot continue to support Kate's leadership campaign. And Scottish Minister for Public Finance, Tom Arthur, posted this. Equal marriage is amongst our Parliament's greatest achievements and one that I would have been proud to vote for had I been an MSP when it was passed. Consequently, I am unable to continue to support Kate's campaign. Other SNP parliamentarians who back Forbes, or did back Forbes, including Pete Wishart, Hannah Bardell and Gillian Martin, have now withdrawn their support. In response, Kate Forbes said this to Times Radio. In this country, equal marriage is a legal right. And I am a servant of democracy. I am not a dictator. I respect and defend that democratic choice to the hilt. That choice was almost a decade ago in the making. Mm. I was certainly not in frontline politics. But what I've said is that in the same way that I would defend to the hilt your right in a pluralistic and tolerant society to live and to love free of harassment and fear, in the same way I would hope that people of faith could be afforded the right to practice mainstream religious teachings about marriage. In fact, those teachings are pretty common across the main religions of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and so on. So if we're saying that public office, or at least high public office, is barred to people of a particular faith, or people who have a faith but can leave that faith um, as there are stripped uh, elements of that faith, mm. then it is getting into dangerous territory. And ultimately, this is a question of what does a pluralistic, tolerant society look for look like? Later, STV asked Forbes how she thought the campaign was going. Given that some of your supporters have now quit your campaign, are you going to see the campaign through? At the moment, yes. At the moment, yes? Yes, I am committed to uh, giving that choice to the SNP voters. But even just saying at the moment, yes, well, does that mean at some point you may consider your position just pull out? No, I'm committed to seeing the campaign So you'll see it through to the end, to the 27th of March? At the moment, yeah. At the moment, Michael. What struck me most actually with Forbes is she started this thing as the favourite, particularly once Angus Robertson pulled out, but she seems extraordinarily lightweight. Didn't any of her supporters think this might be quite a big deal? Yes, I'm hoping that because I'm one of the... Uh you know, affected minority communities, the audience will forgive me from finding all of this just quite entertaining. I mean, it is, it's such a complete car crash. And how she thought she would get away with this, I don't know. And I suppose it's worth unpicking some of her arguments. So in that, um, in, in the interview about sex before marriage, she said, um, are you asking me if I would impose my views on other people? Are you, you're, she was sort of getting quite aggressive. You're saying, I, 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 it's fine for me to practice. Um, you're, you're trying to make out that me saying I wouldn't practice um, sex before marriage is me saying I want to impose it on other people. Now, that would be a reasonable argument if she hadn't also said she would vote against gay marriage. 
because it, it, <laughs> it's fine if she doesn't want to if she doesn't want to enter into a gay marriage fine but if you are voting against it yes you are imposing your views and your way of life onto other people like it's quite simple it's it's it, it, it's completely bizarre it's completely lightweight um, again, the I condemn the use of coercion. I think what was just clear from that, and also from the Angela Merkel line, right, is that she's she's sort of sat in a room with some PR people and her advisors, and they've sort of, sort of come up. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We'll just say Angela Merkel did this. People like Angela Merkel. We'll just say Angela Merkel did this, and it'll be completely fine. But the conversion therapy, she clearly, you know, my interpretation of that interview is she doesn't have too much of an issue with coercion therapy or the idea of trying to help someone to stop being gay. I mean, you know, the inference of her previous statements is she doesn't think men should have sex with men or women should have sex with women because if if they can't get married and they can't have sex before they get married, you know, that's not going to be a great life. So, I mean, if, if that were the case, I'd seek conversion, you know, if I, if I wasn't able to, to pursue any kind of romantic relationship, right? So it seems, again, that that was this holding position that her PR person had told her would suffice. And obviously, none of it was going to suffice. And I suppose on the serious issue here, because there, there have been some pretty terrible takes on social media about this. This idea that we're saying, I mean, obviously she repeated it, but I've seen people sort of agree with this. And she's saying, it's its very illiberal if we are essentially barring people from public life if they have fairly mainstream religious beliefs. And I think that would be a problem, right? If, if it were to be the case that, say, Kate Forbes was excluded from, from the SNP for having those beliefs, I would think that would be completely unwarranted. Don't really have a particular issue with her being Scotland's finance minister with, with those views. I don't think this should be dealt with in a sort of, you know, by expelling people or by coercing people not to say things or by censoring people. But what's going on right now is that there is a democratic leadership election. She's standing to be leader of a fairly liberal party and she has a bunch of very liberal views. And they're not just personal views because she says this would affect how she votes, right? So she does want to impose her views on other people. And she doesn't think that should be taken into account when SNP members vote one way or the other. It's, it's, it's completely incoherent. No, people with um, religious views like Kate Forbes should be allowed to stand for parliament. They should be allowed to stand to be first minister of Scotland. But people are going to take into account how you vote, right? And this affects how you vote. So uh, of course, it's going to be an issue. And it just seems to me that if they couldn't see that coming, like, whoa, you know, I read loads of articles, you know, when Nicola Sturgeon and resigned, of people saying she's the competent one. She is just exudes competence. Everyone who meets her is incredibly impressed with her. Like if if that's the case, I mean, she's she's clearly not. She's a lightweight politician. And I mean, she just doesn't seem very bright from those interviews, quite frankly. The thing about her that really captured my imagination was this felt to me like a kind of late New Labour politician. You had lots of these kinds of characters towards the sort of fag end of the New Labour years, 2007, 8, 9. People like James Pennell and whatnot, incredibly lightweight. And the second they were posed the remotest challenge on either a sort of media or political level, they just kind of folded. You know, another example here is Owen Smith. I mean, I know that's when Labour in opposition, but a similar phenomenon. We've talked about her views on LGBT rights. I mean, it's important to say she, she's not saying, well, look, let's not get into the ambiguity here. Frankly, it's it's absurd. One thing, actually, I do want to say, Michael, to what you said there. Look, the SNP claims to be a Liberal Party. People say, it's outrageous. She should be allow allowed to contend for a leadership position. Yes, in a socially conservative party. Fine, if, if, the, if the Scottish Conservative Party is saying, we believe in conservative values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, 
then go run for their leadership. But you don't get to run for the leadership of a party which claims to be uh, pro-liberal. It just it doesn't make sense. And they said, oh, how dare you hold my potential voting record against me as a politician? Like, well, what else do you want to be judged by? It's not just, you know, gay people, Michael, and uh, uh, people who are being uh, subject to conversion therapy. It's also people like myself, Michael. I just want to get this clear. She's opposed to people born outside of wedlock. And I thought actually her response to that was particularly instructive because I was born outside of wedlock. My mother raised me really as a single mum. And if you're a politician, you say, look, ideally, a child is raised in a supportive environment where two parents are present. Ideally, long-term relationship or they're married. That can't always happen. And there are loads of single parents out there doing an amazing job. I think that's true, by the way. And I think that's a very smart political answer. But she, she couldn't even say that, right? Which... I found really, really striking. And there's been this idea, and I've, I've peddled it, I, I believe it, I still believe it despite Kate Forbes, in recent years that the sort of most talented politicians we're getting right now in the UK are at the periphery. So you see Mark Drakeford at the Cardiff Seneth, you see uh, even something like, you know, um, the, the Scottish Conservative leader uh, previously, or Alex Salmond or Nic Nicola Sturgeon, this idea that actually the most talented politicians were being forged outside Westminster. Do you think Kate Forbes means we have to revisit that hypothesis? Well, I mean, she's not going to win, right? So, I mean, if you think of, you know, in, in, in Westminster politics, Liz Truss stood to be the leader of the governing party and she True. actually won, right? Kate Forbes is, is standing to be the first minister of Scotland and she's going to lose, right? I mean, maybe someone's going to clip this and I'm going to look, like an idiot when this race ends. But I mean, I would bet quite a lot of money on Kate Forbes losing this race because she is standing in a relatively liberal party with some incredibly liberal positions. I find the whole thing, yeah, a, a, a little bit entertaining. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I don't think we need to rethink that, that, you know, more talented politicians are emerging from the periphery. It could be the thing, it, it could be another example of when you have a party which is in government too long, you end up with less talented politicians because people join it just because they want to be um, successful. You join that party because it's the party where you get to get a junior ministerial position and then potentially rise up to something like finance minister. I mean, I, I'm not sure what Kate Forbes' ideology is or why she has, has, has stood for this particular role, but it, it might be because it's the governing party. So there's one final thing worth mentioning on this. Like the stupidest takes I've seen on this are basically trying to feed into... I mean, it's essentially kind of a racist narrative, which is to say Christians are persecuted. They wouldn't do this if it was a Muslim candidate. So loads of people say this, right? Um, and uh, it would be stupid in any situation, but it's especially stupid when Kate Forbes is running against a Muslim candidate who has been asked whether he would vote for gay marriage. He said yes, right? So, so if she was a Muslim, she would also be being asked these questions and people don't particularly like it when you have politicians who would support, I mean, because not voting for gay marriage is supporting the ban on gay marriage, right? So it, it, it is an active thing to do. You're supporting the ban on gay people getting married, right? And, and whatever religion, people now get asked it in politics. I think that's a good thing. And I think it's a good thing that it plays a role in leadership elections, whether or not people would ban gay people getting married. And then we can go through all the, the other list of of you know, very conservative opinions that this, this woman has. Next story. More than nine out of 10 companies that trialed a four-day work week are so impressed with the results, they plan to adopt it in the longer term. That's the conclusion of a six-month study in the UK involving 61 companies. 
The ambition of campaigners for a four-day week is for staff to receive 100% of the pay for 80% of the time while delivering the same output as before. And to be clear, not everyone involved in this study is adopting it permanently, at least not yet. But 18 of the 61 companies said they would keep the four-day week on a permanent basis because of observable benefits. Meanwhile, a further 38 said they were going to continue with the trial. How did the workers themselves feel about the shift? One office worker had this to say to Sky News about the pilot. Weekends can be quite hectic, the two-day weekend. Uh, so it's been quite nice to have that extra day. You see your friends and family on the two days when they're also free, and then you get that extra day off during the week just to do all your chores or just to have that time to yourself to relax. So it's really made a big difference to my mental health. We just heard there about improved mental health is backed up by data from the study. 39% of those participating said they were less stressed working four days rather than five. Other stats that stand out from the study include how the number of sick days dropped by around two-thirds, while there was a 57% fall in the number of people leaving the companies. The results even found, and I found this astonishing, that company revenue actually went up during the trial. They increased slightly by 1.4% over the trial period and by 35% when compared to the same six-month period in 2021. Earlier today, I spoke to Jack Kellum from the think tank Autonomy one of the groups who organized the pilot. I began by asking what people found they valued most about having an extra free day. People found their sleep was better with this extra day off. I think that's a really big thing for people. I think that has a real knock-on effect to fatigue of people uh, feel and rest of working re week right by losing out on sleep. So sleep has improved. In terms of balancing sort of caring responsibilities, so we often see particularly you know, a lot of interviews that were done in the study with with workers and I think what comes up particularly with parents is that extra time whether that's just to do their uh, errands with kids right running them to school or to spend more time with them at the end of the day I think um you know reduced working hours makes a massive difference to people's mental health in that respect as well so those are two of the really big I think uh, findings that we've seen here but you know often you know the amazing thing about short working hours is it can mean something different to everyone right it's freedom to do as you wish in that extra time there are common themes that come up, like I've said. So, yeah, for instance, with parents, but you know, people find different different options, right? Whether that's taking up hobbies, uh, whether that's just getting like the life admin that gets in the way through the week out of the way on your extra day off. You know, people are able to put um, put it to work as they like. Staff retention is hugely important for businesses, and there was one statistic which said that the number of people leaving these companies fell by fifty seven percent during the period of the trial. How important was that as a finding in the study? Yeah, so I think this has been a big shift that we've seen in some of the companies that we've worked with, shifting to a four-day working week over recent years. So I was obviously the draw of productivity and improved worker well-being has been long-standing. I think, particularly in the last 12 months, uh, keeping hold of workers and being more attractive uh, to new workers as well has become one of the top uh, top reasons that people are shifting to a shorter working week. And I think um, sort of going forward, that's uh, that's going to be one of the real uh Real, real attractions to, to, short, to shorter working hours. And are there any sort of big companies now that you're talking to on the back of this study um, who, who might want to adopt it or do trials of their own? Because it's important to say 18 of the 61 companies involved are going to permanently adopt this. 38 are now continuing with the trial, more or less. So is that going to be part of a, a bigger study with even more businesses coming in? Is this just the beginning of widespread interest from the business sector about a four-day week? 
I mean, without going into details, we've definitely had interest from some really um, big, big companies around Europe and worldwide in recent months in terms of this transition to shorter working hours. I think this is going to be an increasing trend. It's not going to go away. I think that raises a really important point now for uh, trade unions and other progressive politicians to really sort of get behind and help to shape shorter working hours. You know, this isn't this isn't a flash in the pan now. It's been uh, we've seen a growing number of companies make this shift. So it's really important to make sure that this continues to work in the interests of all, right? Um, so it'd be great to see increasing uptake now as more and more companies are getting on board with this to see trade unions, politicians helping to shape this to make sure that you know, the four-day working week does work out for everyone. And are there any sectors where this might not work? That really interests me because people obviously look at big companies like Google or Microsoft or you know organizations in the public sector, the civil service, and they might say four-day weeks, uh, that works. Are there any sectors where that's just simply not the case, where it's just dysfunctional? So there are sectors where it certainly requires a different strategy to move to a shorter working week. So as whereas many of the companies involved in this trial were able to move to shorter working hours for no loss in pay without having to hire additional workers. Yeah, if you're looking at other sectors which are uh, more sort of human labour intensive, right? So whether that's uh, within care, uh, whether that's within health, uh, education, for instance, in a sense, it's harder, right? But it's just a question of numbers. So you're going to need in these situations to hire more staff. But I think within the public sector, you know, education, health, you know, it should still be a desirable goal, right? We know, you know we've seen a wave of strikes recently from teachers and um, junior doctors just announced today. You know, pay is a, obviously a hugely significant issue for many of these people, but so is workload and working time. Uh, and I think putting back shorter working hours on the table for many of these sectors is going to be just as important as the sort of traditional or office-based work, which many of the companies who've, who've moved earlier to a shorter working week. One of the most surprising findings in this whole study for me was the fact that revenue went up, important to say only slightly, I think it was 1.2% on the previous three months, it was significantly more than that on a year earlier. But of course, there was the aftermath of COVID and whatnot. So what you're saying is then that actually implementing a four-day week, having the same amount of output for the same amount of pay, but people working less, it's going to work in some sectors, but not necessarily in others. Well, no, not necessarily. I, I, I think shorter working hours really has to be a desirable goal across society, right? The effects of overwork, the effects of burnout, you know, we see just as much, if not more, in some of these more difficult sectors, such as the public sector. So it's just as important to find strategies to make that transition um, over there as well. But it's, it's going to require investment. <laughs> it's going to require um, uh, a greater degree of thinking and strategic planning to make that happen. But there's just as much need and just as much demand for shorter working hours there too. I think what we're seeing here is a is an early wave of trendsetters, right, within uh, many of these companies. But this is going to be a growing movement. You know, we have the five day we've had the five day week for nearly a century now. At one point, there was a transition from six days uh, to for us to win a weekend. I don't think there's any reason we should see this five days as set in stone. I think you know reducing working time. Is, is the trend we're set on, is the future we're heading towards. And we should see that across society. It's going to require planning. It's going to require investment. But the benefits are pretty clear. That was Jack Kellum from Autonomy speaking to me earlier today. Michael, we operate a four-day week here at Navarra Media. Does it work? Yes. And I do think a four-day week would be probably, you know, one of the big free policies that would just dramatically improve kind of everything. I think it improves people's health, it improves people's happiness. And I think, you know, you know, quite rightly in that interview, suggested there's going to be some industries where it's 
harder to get the same amount of work done in four days, care, for example, because it's hard to increase your productivity because part of the whole point of it is you are physically there. Um, at the same time, I can imagine that even in those sectors, you, you will do that job better if you're only working four days a week because the job is also to you know, be someone's company, to check if they're okay. And if you're not completely shattered, then you're going to be able to do that better than you otherwise would. I mean, I suppose how I often think about this is like we work a four day week and it's so brilliant for my life. But also, like, I'm a single guy with no dependents. Like, I don't understand how people work more than I do with, like, two kids. And, you know, it's, it just seems crazy that as a society, we've, we force people to work 40 hours a week and then go home and look after their kids. Like, it, it's, it, it seems irrational. It seems, it seems kind of inhumane, to be honest. So I think moving to a four-day week is absolutely, absolutely essential. Um, I think what this... Um, uh, this study shows is that, yeah, in some sectors, you will be able to do that just in terms of productivity gains, which makes total sense to me. Um, I think in my job, if I was hosting this show, you know, every night a week, it would just get more boring. I'd have less time to to think about interesting things to talk about. The audience would hear from fewer people. Um, and then there are going to be some sectors where you do need more staff. And that just means taxing the rich, right? So for a four day week, we probably will have to introduce some more wealth taxes so that we can employ more carers, we can employ more teachers, we can employ more um, nurses and you know, it would be great for them. It would also be great for all of us because wouldn't it be great to go to hospital and not be concerned that the nurse who is who is seeing to you is completely overworked, completely stressed, potentially has PTSD from COVID and hasn't had the time to recover. You know, I think it would benefit us all if everyone got to walk around society being a little bit happier than they are and making people work a little bit less than they currently do seems an obvious route to get there. You said it was one of three things that would be quick, Simple, easy, but massive fixes for society. What are the other two? Let's say four-day week, super cheap housing, um, and then we're obviously going to have to do something about climate change, aren't we? But I'm not an expert on that one, so I don't have the one neat trick to solve it, but we'll, we'll just put that in the climate corner. Brilliant. Michael Walker just reinvented the left. Final story, and this is a strange one. Matt Hancock's charitable efforts have transformed literally tens of lives. His efforts for dyslexia awareness include mentioning the condition three or four times on I'm a Celebrity. And he donated a whopping 3% of his appearance fee to a dyslexia charity. Now he's focusing his extraordinary efforts on Ukraine and wielding the power of disruptive technologies to support the war effort. I want to tell you about a family living here in England. They're an ordinary family, but last year their world was ripped apart because being Ukrainian, when Putin started his illegal invasion, they had to flee. Irina and Mariana, who's five, came here to England and have been living in West Suffolk ever since. But Oleg wasn't able to follow because he had to support the war effort. But Oleg is not a fighter, he is an artist. He's exhibited right across Ukraine and now he's managed to come here too and is going to be exhibiting some of these extraordinary paintings which show landmarks of Ukraine, many of which have since been destroyed by the war. In order to support the war effort and support families like Oleg and Irina and Mariana, they will be launching an NFT with Coinbase in order to raise funds. So please, support those who've been displaced by this horrendous war. Support people like Irina and Oleg and Mariana.
and support this NFT and this wonderful Ukrainian art. The man constantly surpasses his own partridgisms. Punters will be able to buy those NFTs from the end of this month. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are being made by artist Oleg Mishenko, and they'll be sold on the crypto exchange Coinbase. Only one has been made so far, and it's already been claimed by Tom Duff Gordon. He's Coinbase's vice president of international policy. Mishchenko's wife, Irina Korobkina, and her five-year-old daughter fled to the UK from Ukraine in April 2022. Mishchenko stayed in Ukraine to fight, but joined them later. Financial Times has a little more background on the story. They report this. Seven members of Korobkina's extended family moved into Hancock's 2.2,000-a-month rented constituency house in West Suffolk last April. Mishchenko joined them in December, having been discharged from the army for medical reasons. Oleg, Irina, and their daughter moved out of Hancock's house on Friday. The NFT sale was launched the following Monday. So how much of the money is going to charity? The Financial Times goes on to report. Hancock's press spokesman explained that 90% of the sale proceeds would be donated to Care International's UK humanitarian appeal, with 10% going to Mishenko's family. Coinbase will be waiving transaction fees, he said. And for Hancock, a good deed is its own reward. Well, we found that from I'm a Celebrity. Michael, what are your thoughts on this? It seems very strange that you'd launch a project just several days after you leave the house of the politician promoting the same project. Uh, I'm not sure I'd read too much into that. I mean, you know, it, it, t taking this story on its own, you know, without what, what else we know about Matt Hancock, I can kind of imagine, you know, it's it's a bit of an embarrassing project. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm sure the charity is good, but like the NFTs, non-fungible tokens, it's an embarrassing thing. Like they're ridiculous. Um, so, but I, I can imagine you're a politician, you know, you know this family, you know, you feel a bit sorry for them because they're struggling. They've had to flee a war-torn country. They say, Matt, you've got a big profile. Could you advertise this, please? And to be fair to him, in that video, he looks like he is being held at gunpoint. Um, you just wonder what's going on sort of below the, what you can see on the screen. Like either he's trying to hold in like a really heavy butt plug or someone is like, you know, prodding him with, or threatening to prod him um, with something very hot or completely bizarre. But yeah, I suppose the, the so I, I, I'm somewhat forgiving of him when it comes to the NFT. I think the idea that Matt Hancock does a good deed for a good deed's sake is a little bit far-fetched though, given what we know um, when it came to I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here when he was uh, paid, I think, £300,000 and donated a five-figure sum to charity, that five-figure sum being the lowest five-figure sum uh, one can donate, which was £10,000, but he was very proud of it nonetheless. Um, so I have very little trust in the guy, but I think the idea of you know doing a shout-out for something which you know, you feel a bit under pressure to do, you know, I can, I can see how it would have happened. I don't necessarily think there was some sort of deal where Matt Hancock says, look, can you just leave this house? If you leave this house, I promise I will do a social media video where I promote your NFT project. I don't know, is that what we're insinuating? Do we think that there was potentially, this was the terms on which Matt could um, kick them out of his country home? Look, let's break this down. This is somebody who's not particularly trustworthy. Um, in my opinion, and when it comes to their personal philanthropic efforts, as I'm a Celebrity proved, they're not perhaps as generous as they like to make themselves out. And he is promoting something which ultimately somebody will profit from. Uh, I, and I have no problem, like you say, with the process of going to the artist. The artist created it. I get that. 
But I, I, I do find it strange. I, I do find it strange that MPs can promote things which somebody will profit from. In this instance, I agree with you. It's entirely fine. But the, the regulations around it just seem quite strange to me. And, you know, okay, you know, it's probably less perfidious than I'm claiming. I think it's probably just more about maximizing brand, uh, you know, uh, brand Hancock than anything else. Uh, but, you know, I, I find it strange. And I, I find it strange that people like this are not only in politics, but they think this is normal behavior. Again, topic for another show. That's why I like being the number two in Michael Host. Then I get to mouth off. Um, in more serious news, uh, Ukraine-related, Joe Biden gave a speech in Poland today, and Vladimir Putin delivered his own address to the Russian people. We'll be covering both those stories and more on this Friday stream, when it'll be the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Michael, what can our guests look forward to on Friday? We have an interview of Anatol Levin lined up, very impressive guy, works at the Quincy Institute. We sort of spoke to him um, you know, at around the time of the breakout of the war. So I'm very interested to see um, what he thinks in terms of how it's developed. Um, might have a couple other guests sort of lined up towards the end of the week, but uh, he's, he's who we've got locked down and that will be a very interesting interview. I look forward to not just watching, but being there myself, Michael. And thanks to everyone watching for this evening. Come back to the channel tomorrow night at 6 p.m. where we live once again with Michael Walker hosting for now. You've been watching Navarra Live here on Navarra Media. My name is Aaron Bastani. Have a wonderful evening and good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.